Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, welcome to the podcast again. We wanted to probe further into the subject of Calvinism and especially limited atonement with Dr. David Allen, who is now teaching at Mid-America Seminary, as the text introduces him. He taught for many years, 18 years, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and he resides in the Dallas area. And uh, really, his beliefs have kind of cost him his job there and moved him on to Mid-America, where he found more of a kindred spirit theologically. He's written extensively on the subject of the atonement, and the books are listed in the introduction. But I want him to explain that to us and tell us why it's uh, so important in uh, our understanding of our salvation, our lives, our ministry, how we can present the gospel. And uh, let's listen to this discussion with David Allen. In our last discussion, we talked with Dr. David Allen about Calvinism in general, or high Calvinism, the five-point variety, especially the Calvinism that believes in limited atonement. And we ended that discussion by uh, David pointing out that limited atonement was the Achilles heel of high Calvinism. And so we're going to talk about that today. So welcome back to our sec part two of uh, our podcast on this one on limited atonement, David. Thank you. A pleasure to be back. <laughs> well, you've written some, uh, you've written the extent of the atonement, which is that, was that a doctoral dissertation? No, no, actually my doctoral dissertation was on the authorship of Hebrews. Oh yeah, I know that. Uh, okay. At the University of Texas at Arlington, where I argued that Luke is the author of Hebrews and that Luke is Jewish. And then that was published later in a book called Luke and Authorship of Hebrews. That was my actual doctoral dissertation. But no, in 2016, the book, The Extent of the Atonement. Was By the published. way, so Origen would say only God and David Allen knows. <laughs> That's right. Origen would edit. <laughs> Go ahead. Comments. I'm sorry. Sorry for that. Cheap no, word. no, my, not at my all. verdict is still out, but I'll have to read your book. But go ahead. You betcha. You betcha. So well, tell us how you uh, got so to writing the books about atonement. Yeah, I became interested in this subject many years ago. Uh, back in uh, uh, 2008, I was a part of a conference uh, on that was a conference critiquing the five points of Calvinism, and my paper was on the subject of limited atonement. So uh, that conference, about, two, about two, 2006, I began doing research on it, Led the, uh, spoke at the conference in 2008, became very interested in the subject, and we published the book, Whosoever Will, in 2010, and I continued to research so that in 2016, uh, I published the book, The Extent of the Atonement. Now, it's a very lengthy tome, rather, yeah. uh, <laughs> rather, rather fat. It'll be a good doorstop if you need one. Uh, <laughs> it could probably be used as a weapon if needed, need be. 842 <laughs> pages, I think. My goodness. But I walked through the history of the debate over the extent of the atonement. And then I give all of the evidence for unlimited atonement in that book. 
And I have to admit, I read your shorter version, The Atonement, uh, rather than the larger version. Right. But still, yeah. I saw that in your book on the atonement, you sliced and diced the subject so well and researched it so well that uh, it's really a definitive work, even the smaller version. So, Well, the smaller version is a general study of the atonement, all aspects of the atonement, mm -hmm. uh, how the atonement's used in the Old Testament, New Testament, the history of the theories of the atonement. Uh, and the theological issues related, related to the atonement. But there is a chapter in there called The Extent of the Atonement. It's a right. lengthy chapter, and it summarizes uh, the, the, the book, The Extent of the Atonement. You're quite right. And so that was also a part of what I have done. And then the latest book, Calvinism, A Biblical and Theological Critique, my chapter uh, in that mm -hmm. book is entitled A Critique uh, of Limited Atonement. Okay. Well, let's let's start by defining atonement. How do you define atonement? Well, atonement in theological usage means the propitiation or the propitiatory and expiatory act of Christ on the cross, whereby he made a satisfaction for sins, and that satisfaction was fully and completely accomplished. And so the word atonement refers, and many people get this confused, the word atonement is a word that refers to the work of Christ on the cross, whereby he paid the penalty for sin, he substituted himself in the place of sinners, whereby he made a propitiatory and expiatory sacrifice for sin that was also substitutionary, and I believe firmly it was penal substitutionary, such that that work on the cross, Jesus satisfies the law of God and the wrath of God objectively, such that there's a, a delayed execution on all sinners. God's mercy delays that, uh, that uh, execution because of the work of Christ on the atonement. So first we have to define atonement. Then we have to define the extent of it and limited. We're going to have to define both of those. Can I stop you there a, for a second? A Can I stop you there? Yeah. Because some listeners may be struggling with the term propitiation and expiation since that those are part of the sure. definitions of atonement. Can you explain propitiation and expiation? Yes. Back in the days of the 1930s and into the 40s, 1940s, there was a big theological debate over whether the term in Greek, hilasmos or hilaskomai, or the word group there that is translated propitiation, whether that should be translated propitiation or expiation. The difference between the two is expiation is a term that deals only with the atonement's effect upon sin. Mm -hmm. Propitiation covers expiation, but it also expresses the atonement's effect upon the Godhead, okay. such that the wrath of God is satisfied in the propitiatory atonement of Christ on the cross. So actually, both are true. But the reason, in other words, propitiation entails and includes expiation. However, expiation does not include propitiation so it is much better as leon morris uh made it clear in his famous the apostolic preaching of the cross that we translate that word as propitiation and not merely as expiation okay so expiation is based on the uh propitiation of god and uh, included but, in it right yeah, included in it um you know so many books have been written about there's so many words that can refer to salvation 
theologically, propitiation, redemption, um, reconciliation, justification. Justification especially has gotten a lot of print. But you chose to put atonement up to the forefront. Uh, right. Why is that a more important discussion for you? Well, the because the question of the extent of the atonement deals specifically with the nature and scope of the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross. Right. And then justific salvation, justification, reconciliation, uh, uh, all of the sanctification, glorification, Redemption. all of these are terms that speak to some nuance of what the cross accomplishes for those who believe. Okay. But... Uh, but uh, again, that this is why we have to. This is why I'm focusing on the actual atonement and the extent of the atonement, uh, because the question, uh, these other things flow out of what the atonement does and the objective basis of the atonement of Christ on the cross. Right. So the atonement concerns that the work that was done and a lot of these other words explain the results of that work or the consequences of that work, like we're justified, we're redeemed, we're reconciled to God. Right. All of those are things that are true when the atonement is applied to the believer. Right. None of those things are true of the atonement itself. Okay. That's true. Okay, very good. Well, what is the, what then is, and this could go on for a long discussion, but in brief, what is the Calvinist argument for limited atonement? The high Calvinist? Well, the basic, yeah, the basic argument that Calvinists use for limited atonement, in fact, in my new chapter here, I might point this out, in the chapter in the latest Calvinism book, Calvinists, I've, I've scoured their literature, I've tried to read virtually everything I can in English, at least, on it. Looks like uh, and a few things in other languages that I could at least comprehend or get translated. Uh, but there are 17 arguments for limited atonement. 17 different 17, arguments. Yeah. Well, we don't have time to go Actually, through them all. I saw all yeah. those. I saw seven. Yeah, we won't go through all of those. There's some two or three key arguments. But actually, among those 17, only one of those 17 is a biblical argument. Wow. The other Which 16, one is that? The other 16 are theological and logical. Right. Uh, the biblical argument is the uh, the uh, evidence that Calvinists attempt to make regarding the uh, key passages of Scripture, such as Matthew 1, 21. You will call his name Jesus. Mm -hmm. He will save his people from their sins. His uh, or the Acts 20 uh, passage where Paul and his let his uh, uh, Ephesian elder uh, presentation in Acts chapter twenty verse twenty eight Christ purchased the church mm -hmm. with his own blood. Well, see, he purchased the church, nobody else. He therefore he died for the church, no, nobody else. That's right. the argument. Or John ten fifteen, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. Ah, he lays down his life for the sheep. So therefore the goats he didn't die for. Yeah. There it is, clear in scripture. I don't want to steal finally, your argument, but your response is that that's an argument of negative inference, as you call it. Yeah, correct. So there, if he yeah. died for the sheep, doesn't mean he didn't die for the non-sheep. That is correct. Yeah. The, there's an easy answer to all of these. And by the way, the fourth text that's used, there are four key texts that Calvinists use to affirm limited atonement. The fourth is Ephesians 5:23. Christ gave himself for the church. 
And they argue these are all limited, that Jesus dies for the church, for his sheep, his people. But the problem here is the negative inference fallacy. The negative inference fallacy says that the specificity in a statement does not entail exclusion exclusion of those who aren't named in the specified group. It's a logical fallacy. Mm -hmm. In other words, if Jesus says he dies for his church, that can't legitimately be interpreted to mean he only dies for the church. Only if you have the word only in those texts, and you do not, yeah. could you affirm limited atonement. None yeah. of those texts teaches limited atonement. You know, if I say I love my wife, does that mean that I only love my wife and no one else? No, I don't love my children, right? grandchildren, or even you as a brother in Christ. See, you can immediately show the fallacy of this argument. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, it, actually the way you argue. It makes it very simple to refute, it seems. Uh, they oh, would yeah. have to include the word only to qualify. That, that, is, that is correct. That is correct. Um, now, some people have... Uh, uh, held to limited atonement because they use the argument of double jeopardy. Can you explain that argument that they use? It's a logic. Again, it's a logical or. Yeah. It's important to note. That's a logical argument. Yeah. yeah. You've got, basically you have what's called the double jeopardy or the double payment argument. You'll hear it referred to yeah. in that way. The basic logic of the argument, hey, if a ransom is paid, if the penalty for sin is paid, then those for whom it's paid must go free. It can't be said to be paid for anyone who is not eventually set free. Uh, or to put it another way, if God punished the sins of someone on the cross and then punished that sinner again in hell, then that would be injustice on God's part. And that's essentially... Uh, the double payment argument. In other words, on the basis of law and justice, a person cannot be charged and punished twice for the same crime. Right. Now, that, that's the argument. Now, people hear that argument and they say, wow, well, that, that makes sense or that's a good argument. Actually, it's flawed at a number of points. Um, and here's where it, how it's flawed. Number one, I point all these out mm -hmm. in the my chapter. Number one, that argument's never made in Scripture for the non-elect. Mm -hmm. or for the atonement in respect to the non-elect. In fact, just the opposite is made. Christ dies for the sins of all people. Number two, the first premise is that if Jesus died for a person, that person cannot fail to be finally saved. That's the premise. That's the false premise. Mm -hmm. It's it's a premise that confuse the logic, the illogic of it is it confuses atonement accomplished with atonement applied. Right. And you make it that conflates, distinction throughout your, yeah. your book, really, the subjective and objective. Right. Uh, right. It conflates atonement made with atonement applied. And that that premise is never stated in Scripture. That was John Owen's premise, and that is the premise of all high Calvinists, but it's simply an errant view. Scripture simply does not teach that premise. Uh and so the and furthermore, the problem with the double payment argument, the argument falsely assumes that the same person is being punished twice. Mm -hmm. But now think about it. Jesus is punished on the cross in your place, but then the the unbeliever is punished in hell as for his sins, and it's not the same person being punished twice. Right. All right. And yes. so that falls apart. 
Now, the biggest problem, though, with it, all those are insurmountable in my view, but the argument is based on a commercial understanding of the atonement. It doesn't understand the mechanism of the atonement. What do you mean by commercial? Can you explain that? What I mean by that is uh, the Bible says that sin is a debt, but that is a metaphor, not a literal statement. The debt nature of sin is metaphorical. Because sin is a debt, but it's more than that. It's a crime. Mm -hmm. And so the argument assumes that if someone dies for someone, sins, then the debt's paid. That's commercialism. Like if you and I go to lunch and I intend to buy your lunch, but I don't have enough money and I'm ashamed, embarrassed. I left my wallet at home and you say, don't worry, David, I got you covered and you pay. The restaurant owner doesn't care whether you pay or I pay. They just care that it's paid for. That's commercialism. The atonement does not work that way. The the atonement is not a commercialistic transaction. Mm -hmm. It is a legal, moral issue. Sin is a crime. It's a debt, but it's also a crime. Let me illustrate it this way. Here's how I've illustrated it many times. Um, Suppose that when I can't pay my debt, that I'm so, I just lose my mind and I pull out my Glock 19 (laughs) and I, I rob the restaurant. I say, give me all the money in the till. And so they hand over $500. I abscond out into the night and am hiding out somewhere over there. And you're standing there, slack-jawed, your jaw's on the ground, and you can't believe what just happened. And you say to the restaurant owner, let's pretend he's a friend of yours. I can't believe that Dr. Allen did what he did. I'm astounded. He just stood there and robbed you at gunpoint. And then you say, look, he stole $500, and you reach into your pocket, and you pull out 500 bucks, and you give him the money that I stole. Mm -hmm. All right? Next morning when I'm caught... And brought before the judge. And the judge says, you are guilty of robbing this store. We're going to sentence you to five years in prison. I said, wait a minute. Whoa, you can't sentence me to prison. Hmm. Because Charlie Bean already paid my debt. Mm -hmm. He paid my $500 that I stole. Hmm. Do you think that judge is going to be persuaded by that argument? Yeah. Of course not. Because the death of Jesus on the cross is not a commercial transaction. The death of Jesus on the cross is a moral, legal transaction that uh, that has uh, conditions on it for its application. Mm -hmm. And the condition for the benefits of the cross to be applied to anyone is faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. And if that condition is unmet, then God is within his right. Even though an atonement is made for your sins, you get to pay the penalty of your sins because you did not meet God's condition of salvation. So the argument, the double payment argument simply doesn't work. It cannot work on a penal substitutionary model. Uh, It just simply cannot do that. Uh, And because the atonement is not commercialism, it is a moral legal issue okay more moral and legal issue and yeah it and also like, i might say this yeah, oh i'm sorry Charlie. no no go ahead. i might say quickly this the double payment argument negates the principle of grace because yeah. john owen 
John Owen, in his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, says, because an atonement is made for the sins of the elect, he says, the elect are owed salvation. Mm. Wait a minute. <laughs> that's not what? Grace, is it? I, that's not grace. It negates the principle of grace. God doesn't know. And then the problem. Yeah, that's a big problem. And you got another problem. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says that the unbelieving elect before they were saved were under the wrath of God. Mm -hmm. How can that be if the atonement, if the double payment argument is true, their sins were paid for at the cross? Yeah. And therefore, it's not possible Paul could write of them as he does in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, when he says that you they are you're under the wrath of God before you were saved you were children of wrath mm -hmm. how can that be if the wrath of God has been taken away yeah well it's because atonement is an objective event that includes subjective application apart from the subjective application you are still guilty before God and John Piper at least got this right uh he got he's got the extent of the atonement totally wrong but he got this right in his chapter on the extent of the atonement uh, in the, the book from heaven, he came in solder. Piper mm. rightly says that if somebody in that Ephesians two, one through three category died before they believed in Christ, they would go to hell. Mm. Now he can't reconcile that with his theology, uh, but he admits that that verse makes it clear that the the elect before they are saved are under the wrath of God, even <laughs> though an atonement's been made for them. That's so good. all of these are arguments that undermine the uh, the the double payment argument. Yeah. Well, it seems like a pretty big inconsistency in the system there. His interpretation of Ephesians two one through three seems like exactly. a lot of these. Uh, issues about the extent of the atonement the the propitiation forgiveness uh reconciliation are accomplished events but they don't lead to universalism because of as you say we have to talk about the objective fact and then the subjective application to people right. so right. even though the, even though he's propitiated the sins of the whole world that's uh uh sufficient but not efficacious unless i believe that is correct that's what the bible teaches right there what you just articulated is precisely what scripture teaches we, we have the same discussion with forgiveness like he's forgiven us all our sins so why do we have to ask for forgiveness uh it seems to me that one was more of a legal transaction the other is uh or a fellowship issue or subject that's correct that's yeah. right and by the way the key text in scripture that affirms the objective and subjective nature of the atonement and the notion of reconciliation mm -hmm. is second Corinthians five, 14 through 21. Yeah. Because second Corinthians five, 18 and 19 uh, says that there is God, that Christ died for the world. Right. Christ died for all. But then the text says but therefore, we need to be ambassadors for Christ. And then and then uh, note carefully, the text says, we beg you as God and Christ is begging through us, be ye reconciled to God. Yeah. So you've got an objective reconciliation in verse 18. Christ has reconciled the world to himself. He's removed That's all the obstacles. He's, he's removed he's all removed the legal the obstacles. obstacles. 
Right. So that there's nothing in the way of anyone being saved other than their own unbelief. Yeah. He has removed the legal obstacles such that God can now be reconciled to all humanity, every individual member of humanity. But that's objectively accomplished. But then reconciliation has to be subjectively accomplished. And that's when Paul tells the church, they are people, when he says, we plead with you, be reconciled to God. Hmm. And so, and not only we plead, but notice God is begging and pleading. Look at that term in Greek, look it up. I would encourage my Calvinist friends who just can't believe that God would beg people to be saved. Yeah, Why you, point. you mean old Arminian you. Well, I've shown many a Calvinist that word in Greek in that text. And that text says God is begging people yeah. to be That's saved. Interesting point. Very good point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, somebody can take the argument for the extent of the atonement being universal to all men and uh, some of these other terms even and come to the conclusion that the Bible teaches universalism, that all will be saved. How do you answer that? Well, in the same way I just mentioned, there's a difference between objective atonement and the atonement that's applied. You've got atonement made and atonement applied. That argument trades on the commercialistic understanding of the mechanism of the atonement. It fails to recognize that Scripture a hundred times in the New Testament says, how is the atonement applied? By faith. Yeah, there's a condition, yeah. There's the condition. So, so the atonement, that. Charles Hodge, listen to this. Charles Hodge said, and I quote this in my book, the atonement in and of itself, unapplied, saves no one. That's a good, that was a little bit, yeah. uh, I, I read that quote and uh, it make, makes you stop and think. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. And, and, and here's Charles Hodge. Nobody can question his Calvinistic credentials. Mm -hmm. Charles Hodge was perhaps the greatest theological uh, reform Calvinistic theologian of the 19th century. He was certainly among the top three, Hodge and Dabney and uh, uh, Robert Dabney and um, uh, Shedd. Those were your three great systematic theologians of all Calvinists. Mm -hmm. By the way, all three of whom affirmed an unlimited atonement and rejected limited atonement. Wow. So that yeah. that's uh, that's like saying that we're all saved by grace. We're not really saved by grace. We are saved by grace, but grace doesn't save us unless it's through faith. And, right. and likewise, the atonement doesn't save us unless we apply it through faith. Right. So faith has to be the instrumental means to the effective means, right. I guess we would say, you know, philosophically. Um, well, that's a, it's been a good discussion, I, a, a little bit too short. I know you keep referring to your books, and I would encourage people to to get the books on the atonement and Calvinism, where you've written and done just excellent work on that. Uh, is there a practical application about how atonement can make a difference in the Christian life and how one understands it? Well, absolutely. Number one, the atonement of Christ means for those of us who are Christians, all of our sins, past, present, and future are covered. We are in a right relationship with God. Uh, therefore, uh, our eternal destiny is secure. The eternal security of the believer is clearly taught in Scripture. A Christian can have, therefore, assurance of their salvation. They don't have to guess about it, worry about it. They know that by they are saved by grace. They're mm -hmm. not saved by grace plus good works. 
They're saved by grace alone. That is a, a wonderfully calming and satisfying concept that then gives you the, the ability, along with the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, to live the Christian life successfully uh, without fear, uh, without worry, uh, because we know we are in the hands of a loving Father who has provided uh, our, our atonement and our salvation is grounded in the finished work of Christ. Mm -hmm. Therefore, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, mm -hmm. sure and steadfast, more secure we could not be because of who Christ is, because of the finality of the atonement, and because of its efficacy when the Holy Spirit applies it to the life of the believer. At that moment, that person is saved, justified, reconciled with God, positionally sanctified, and their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they will never be removed. That's a very liberating and and a message. Absolutely. And yes. I think I think it tells us why Paul begins or ends a lot of his letters with grace and peace, because you can't have peace without that grace that God has given. That's exactly us. right. It all begins with the grace of God. <laughs> Amen. Well, I let's just conclude by mentioning that you also are a teacher of preachers. Uh just can you tell us why you're so passionate about teaching preachers? Uh I'm an old dog. I don't know if I could learn any new tricks, but I'd love to be under your coaching. Um, but I love to listen to good preaching. Well, a year ago, I launched a new ministry called Preaching Coach. And listeners can go to preachingcoach.com and see all that we do and all that we offer. Uh, I do podcasting myself once a week. A podcast drops, the Preaching Coach podcast. Preaching I do webinars once a month. And uh, I also have materials on that website. I have a newsletter. People can simply go to the homepage and they can go to the bottom of the homepage and then sign up. The newsletter is free. I, I write ebooks. I have a number of ebooks on the subject of preaching. Those are all free. Uh, just simply sign up there and then they can request an ebook. And I have an ebook on plagiarism and an ebook on uh, preaching like yourself. Uh, an ebook, really what good. is text driven preaching, you know? Uh, but then I offer packages, awful services where I can coach a pastor or a preacher or a Christian leader, uh, in a three month, six month, or 12 month coaching partnership. And we can meet weekly or we can meet every other week. I have different levels, and of course, there's a different cost depending on how much of my time that you want to be involved in. And I have a number of partners right now that I'm coaching, working with, uh, including those in the United States, mm. one in Spain, some in Malaysia, and the number is growing. And I'm now, does that involve you having to painfully listen to their sermons first? Well, I do. In some cases, actually, part of the coaching package includes uh, a sermon evaluation once a quarter. And uh, I, if you're with me for a year, I would do four of those. We can do more than four, but those are all just automatically a part of the package. And I do listen to and evaluate and give you critique and, and help on your sermon, both content and delivery. Well, your content and delivery is excellent. And um, 
you know, I have the same kind of passion, sounds like in philosophy of preaching as you do. I'm not saying I'm a, a good preacher at all, but I'm going to look at some of these resources and look up your podcast and the, sure. your books and every, yeah, you have another word about preaching. No, I mean, really, text-driven oh. preaching is the terminology that I coined about 25 or so years ago to describe what expository preaching should be. Okay. And there's an article on my, my website that explains that, my podcast explain that. Uh, how to do genuine expository preaching is what I'm all about. That's what I help pastors learn how to do. But I help them learn how to do it with their personality. They, I'm not reproducing me yeah. in them. That would be foolish. But I'm just giving them the information they need and the motivation they need to do this on their own and have the, the ways to study the scripture and to construct a sermon that stays true to the substance of the text, the structure of the text and the spirit of the text. There you go. Well, I, you know, I'm committed to helping people understand what God said, not so much what I say about what God said. So I'm, I'm a big fan of expository preaching or text-driven preaching, as you say. Yes. Well, we have to end there. I want to thank you for your time and your insights. And your books are going are available on Amazon. Um, we'll list yes. them in, in the introductory text where people can look them up. And uh, we just want to thank you very much for uh, illuminating us to the issue of atonement and uh, some insights into the Calvinistic system. Well, it's been my ple pleasure, Charlie. Thank you for having me on. And if you would like to do another follow-up at some point down the road, I'm game. I'm your man. I'd be honored to come on your, your podcast. I appreciate you, your lifetime of ministry. I've read much of your material, and I'm grateful to God for you. Well, that surprises me that you've done that. But, uh, uh, you know, we ought, to do, we ought to do a podcast on preaching, expository preaching. I'd love to do it. That would be great. Yeah. Love to so, do it. Again, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. David Allen, for being with us. And uh, we'll look forward to maybe a future conversation. Thank you very much. My pleasure. So you heard Dr. Allen talk about the importance of this doctrine of atonement and how it really is the Achilles heel of the Calvinistic, the high Calvinistic system. It's really hard to believe that anyone would think that God only loves some people and did not die for all people when the Bible clearly says that. It seems to me as I read high Calvinist interpretations that lead to limited atonement, they do a lot of tap dancing around the scriptures but never really have a solid scripture to confirm their view. It's mostly a theologically driven viewpoint. So instead of letting the scriptures lead them, they let their theology drive them. To an unfortunate end where God only loves some people, Jesus only died for some people, and we can't offer the gospel and eternal life to everyone because it would be an insincere offer if Jesus really didn't die for them. So what a tragic system that is, and I hope you can see that now. But be kind in your discussions to those who disagree with you, and be biblical above all things. And we want to, again express our gratitude to Dr. Allen for enlightening us on this, and I hope that you look up his resources. We'll hope to have another conversation with him in the future, too, so you join us for that. Till then, we'll see you later. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. 
See you next time.